Hello, everybody. We are recording this podcast on Friday, November 6th, uh, and we have all been closely watching the results of this election pour in over the last few days. And it uh, does look like at this point that Joseph Biden will be our next president. But it's been really a confusing election year and particularly a confusing last few days as people have tried to understand all the different ways in which election administration works in the United States. And a lot of folks, I think, are wondering why it has been so confusing and so contested in so many different ways. So today we're going to step back and talk about how we do elections in America and how we might do them better. So welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And today, to talk about how we do elections in America, we have a very special guest, Charlotte Hill, who's finishing up a PhD at the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley and is also on the board of two leading reform organizations, Fair Vote and Represent, Represent Us. And actually, about two months ago, Charlotte uh, tweeted out an idea that uh, maybe we should have a, a Department of Democracy in the U.S. to kind of standardize and regulate elections. And later I said, hey, that's a good idea. You should write it up. And she said, well, how about we write it up together? So two months later, we now have a New America white paper and a New York Times op-ed that is in print today, uh, Friday, uh, November 6th, uh, laying out the proposal. So I'm thrilled that Charlotte was able to come on the pod and talk to us about it today. Welcome, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. All right. So a lot to talk about here. Um, so... Uh, but before we, we dig into the proposal, which we're going to do, uh, we're going to kick tires on it. Um, I, I just want to get some quick reactions from you, Julia and James, on you know, what's your kind of top line response to, to this proposal to set up what we're now calling a federal election agency that would basically standardize and, and, uh, and regulate how we do elections in the United States. It would be an independent, nonpartisan body. And we can obviously talk about the details, but top line, what do you guys think? Julia? I'm broadly supportive of the idea. Um, I've, I've been talking with uh, various audiences over the last couple of weeks about American elections and trying to bring people up to speed on the decentralization and complexity of our election administration. I talked to a group of um, of college students in, in Canada last week, and this was like this took this was like a third of my talking points was just explaining how decentralized our process is. So I'm broadly supportive of the idea. Um, I have a lot of questions about about implementation and about how it would link up with other types of of issues. And I'm let me preface my initial kicking the tires comments here by saying I'm generally in favor and not generally always in favor of making it as easy and convenient for people to vote as possible. And I think we've discussed that in the past. And I think there's certain aspects about this that would certainly help that. Um, but I, I do have, to be honest with you, some concerns. I think we can talk about it. I'm anxious to ask you and Charlotte questions. You know a lot more about this than I do. But asking you some questions relating to its uh, the constitutionality of this uh, proposal. And then also what the effects would be in terms of kind of future elections. And, and 
and whether or not a centralized elections agency, if you will, is a overall a good thing or a bad thing in terms of the security of our elections. Well, great. Well, I think we'll have plenty of time to get into all that. But, you know, I think the, the logical starting point is to understand what the problem is and how we actually do elections. So, Charlotte, do you want to kind of set it up a little bit and talk about like why why did you why did you come up with this idea in the first place? Like what's what's wrong with how we're doing elections in America? Why why is it a problem that we have all this decentralization where we have all the these state and local election administrators making their own their own rules? Well, I guess it's states making their own rules and then election administrators having to deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, states, but also, you know, some localities, uh, depending on on how much delegation states give to local governments within the state. Um, I'll start off by saying that I have profound respect for local election administrators in the United States. They are often trying to do the best they can to expand participation and ensure the security of elections with very few resources. Elections in the U.S. are kind of chronically underfunded. And uh, I had the great experience of being able to serve as an elections commissioner in the city and county of San Francisco. So overseeing the local department of elections in San Francisco for a couple of years and serve on vice, as the vice president of that commission. And uh, while I don't claim that that experience gives me you know, a, a deep understanding of how elections are run on the local level uh, in the US, it certainly opened my eyes to the complexity of the operation and how hard it is. So I do think it's important to add that caveat because I, in no way, shape or form, am I trying to say that local election administrators are, you know, are doing a bad job and we need to usurp power from them. I think that they're often doing the best that they can in pretty trying circumstances. But we have some problems with elections in America. And you know, in our proposal, we, uh, Lee, you, know, you and I break out four of these problems. The first and, and possibly most important is that all voters in America are not treated equally. Some voters, depending on where they live, uh, have a much easier time participating in our election system. And some voters really don't. So take the state of Colorado. If you're a voter in Colorado, uh, you can, uh, if you're registered to vote, the state will automatically send you a ballot by mail. I think a lot of folks know this now because of the attention that mail voting has, has received in the 2020 election, but you'll, you'll automatically get that ballot. You can fill it out in the safety and comfort of your own home, return it in one of hundreds of secure drop boxes around the state or via USPS drop boxes, and, and your voting job is done. But if you weren't registered in time to get that ballot sent to you by mail, you can also show up on election day and take advantage of what's called same day voter registration in the state. You can register and vote at the same time. Uh, and some separate research I've done in coordination with uh, or in collaboration with Adam Bonica and Hakeem Jefferson at Stanford and Jake Grumbach at uh, University of Washington found that when Colorado embraced these policy changes, making it easier for folks to vote, turnout went up pretty dramatically, especially for the lowest propensity voters in the state, you know, young people and voters of color especially. So we know that some states like Colorado make it pretty easy for folks to participate. But there are other states, say Mississippi, where you can't even register to vote online. You don't have some of these policies that make it easy to participate. Uh, you're probably going to have to go and wait in pretty long election lines on election day to vote if you didn't register well in advance of the, you know, of election day by some kind of arbitrary registration deadline. You're not going to be able to participate. 
And you know, we stepped back and looked at this and said, all voters really aren't being treated equally. This is not how we should run elections in a uh, ostensibly free and fair democracy. But the issue isn't just how easy it is for folks to vote. We also have the problem where some votes count more than others. Now, some of that is because of the way the constitution is designed and we're not gonna quickly fix that with federal legislation or a federal agency. I'm thinking about the Senate in particular and each state getting two senators. Uh, we could talk about that if we, if we want to get into it. I know you guys have talked about that in, in the past. Uh, but we do have, for example, partisan gerrymandering happening in a lot of states where legislators are writing or are drawing districts in order to entrench their own power. And that ends up giving some voters more say over who gets elected than others. And it, it's, just, it, it's just fundamentally unfair. And it, in recent years has led to the Republican party having a disproportionate advantage in our elections. Uh, and so you know, there are other problems with our elections, issues relating to security around the complication uh, of registering and voting around the lack of federal enforcement. But for me, the, the most important problem is that you know, depending on where you live largely in this country, you might have a pretty easy time participating in our democracy and in choosing your legislators and holding them accountable, or it might be quite difficult for you. So I find this a really interesting idea. And I commend our readers to check out the New York Times op-ed. It's fabulous. I think it's a very good thing, um, a very great op-ed. But I do have some questions. And, I, you know, like everything, I want to take a step back and start at the constitutionality of the proposal or even how we do our elections. And decentralization, I'll be the first to tell you, it. The, our system right now is complicated, complex, convoluted in a number of different ways. And it has a lot of inefficiencies to it. But there are also some benefits, it seems to me. If you look at the expansion of the franchise in the early uh, 19th century with property, propertyless whites being white men being able to, to vote in elections, that was because you had newer states, the West back then, like Kentucky and others coming on who coming into the union who would have lower, um, they wouldn't have that requirement. So they and they lowered their uh, voting requirements so that they would attract settlers. And then the East had to adopt that requirement to hold settlers there. If you look at women's suffrage is another great example of how different states were ahead of the curve, thankfully, on this important issue and were able to do it and authorize women's suffrage uh, well before the, there was a federal uh, guarantee in the Constitution. But I guess my, my question to both of you relates to the argument you make and you acknowledge the Constitution in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 in the op-ed. Uh, you know, but there are, there are two provisions here, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 1, and Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. The first one basically allows uh, states to determine, it gives them the responsibility, I guess, of, of establishing their voter requirements for congressional elections, although there are certainly limits on that and there have been more added since the Constitution was written. And you've, and then Section 4, Clause 1, which you all mentioned, this clause is important to me, but it vests, it seems to me, the power to regulate elections in the states and in the federal government. Right. I mean, there's it doesn't allow you to change the place where you vote for senators. And I'm wondering to what extent do we, you know, and obviously this is your the proposal is not for specific policies necessarily, but to what extent do we need to change the constitution to give the this new department the powers that you all envision it 
operating and, 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 and wielding. Because in the past, whenever we've tinkered with the franchise in this nation, we've deemed it important, necessary to go the constitutional route. And so I'm wondering why that's not necessary now. I can dive into to start. I think you know, we did fairly extensive research on this question uh, as we were thinking about our proposal because we wanted to be sure that we were putting forth something that would be uh, upheld in the courts, that would be constitutional. Uh, the, the GAO, the, the U.S. General Accounting Office, commissioned a report, I think it was around 2001, that was exploring uh, how much authority Congress had in the area of election administration. And what they determined was that Congress's authority, at least when it comes to elections for uh, representatives and, and senators at the federal level, Congress's authority is paramount to that of the states. Um, it's a little less clear when it comes to presidential elections because uh, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 4 says that Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their their votes doesn't really say much more beyond that. In general, uh, when when Congress regulates how states can, uh, can what state elections look like in regards to representatives and senators, it, it is in effect also regulating how states conduct their presidential elections because states aren't generally going to have different sets of rules on the books for congressional elections versus presidential ones. Uh, so, so we think we have the constitution on our side. Let me, uh, James. I also want to respond to uh, the, the thrust of the the, of the first part of of your response, which is this idea that decentralization can be a force for good, and that certain states might put in place more innovative or representative uh, ways of expanding the franchise. And I mean, I think that's certainly true. And, you know, I mean, one way to think about this agency is that it sets floors, not ceilings, right? I mean, it says, that, I mean, the, we, there would need to be some enabling legislation, but the basic idea would be, you know, we need to make sure all voters are treated equally, all voters are treated fairly. And if states want to go above and beyond that in making it even easier to vote than the, than the laws say, then I think that's great. But what we've seen throughout most of the history of the US is that a lot of states have, and particularly in the last you know, two decades or so, there have been a lot of states that have really made it harder to vote in ways that have disproportionate effects on, uh, on low income, younger voters, voters of color, uh, and a lot of democratic voters. And that's you know, fueled this, this sense that the voting in the US is deeply unfair uh, and you know, there's a sense on the right, too, that Democratic states are making it too easy to vote. But point is that in, in a democracy, elections are the center. And if you don't have a basic floor of clear national standards, uh, things start to get very uncertain and potentially illegitimate. And I worry that's where we are right now. That's a great point. And Julia, I'm sorry, I just wanted to jump in for a quick follow-up here. It's an excellent point. I guess my I, I respect the idea of a floor and not a ceiling. And when I think about centralization, I'm just kind of hardwired to think, you know, what's to, I mean, I guess the, the fundamental question still remains, to what extent can this agency or department provide protections that go beyond the project protections that already exist in law as authorized by the Constitution and its amendments, and the Supreme Court's case is 
Supreme Court cases there too. But then number two, I mean, I you know, I think back to the 19th century. I mean, there were some states like North Dakota and others, they would let non-citizens vote. You had, which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, depending on your perspective. But my point is, it's not just women's suffrage or properlyless whites. I mean, you had same-day registration throughout. I mean, prior to the progressive era, you had actually states adopting very, very different and varying laws, that some of which were really... Um, conducive to uh, making it easy for people to vote. And so I'm, I'm wondering to what extent also, in addition to the constitutionality, can an administration who is hostile, so let's just assume there's an administration that's hostile to the franchise and wants to make it harder for people to vote. Well, to what extent can that administration or their party then use this as a vehicle to do so? I think this is the central question or challenge uh, that we had to grapple with in our proposal. And I don't think it has an easy answer. Uh, I think to the extent that we've gotten pushback on our proposal, it's largely revolved around this. You know, we're dealing with uh, a fairly anti-democratic uh, outgoing, uh, it looks like, presidential administration right now and a fairly anti-democratic uh, anti modern Republican party. Um, and so for many, I think the idea of centralizing power or centralizing authority over our elections to any extent at the federal level feels feels pretty scary. Um, and I will say that there's there's a trade-off here, right? I mean, either we can have a pretty toothless agency uh, that can't do much, but that um, therefore can't be used for, for ill by an anti-democratic force that gains control over it, or we can create a robust agency with real uh, enforcement power and, and possibly, you know, standard setting power. But if it got into the wrong hands, that would be problematic. So, so we thought hard about this. And my conclusion, and I think Lee is on the same page here, is that the, the real solution right now, the only real solution to our rapidly degrading democratic system in the United States is to swing for the fences and pass a strong, enforceable, enacting law that, that standardizes free, fair, and secure elections. And to expect that under those rules, if they are actually enforced, you know, the modern GOP and any future anti-democratic force would not be able to get elected because you can't get elected if your electoral strategy hinges on voter suppression and partisan gerrymandering under strong federal laws that, that don't permit those things. Um, but we did add in additional safeguards, you know, because there is still the fear that at some point folks get elected under those fair democratic rules, but then they try to change the rules in order to entrench, entrench their own power. That's where having a really strong mandate uh, in the enacting legislation for the agency really starts to matter. So we call for Congress to pass enabling legislation that's grounded in clear principles, elections, uh, calling for elections to be fair, free, uh, for rules to be consistent, uh, for elections to, to be auditable and, and trustworthy and for them to be sufficiently funded with, with independent funding that is not reliant upon Congress. I will add, and I think we could discuss this more, um, that we'd probably need an expanded court uh, in order to make sure that anyone who, who tried to pass regulations that didn't abide by that enabling legislation, didn't abide by those principles, uh, that they would that they would be stopped and those regulations would be overturned. And I don't think I don't have any confidence that the Supreme Court as it currently constituted would do its uh, you know appropriate would, would play the appropriate role there. The, the final thing I'll add and I'll let Lee jump into is that we also put a lot of thought into how the agency was designed to ensure that it could be uh, as much uh, as independent as possible and as nonpartisan as possible. 
so that was creating an agency that is insulated from partisan meddling while still retaining some accountability to the public. Uh, initial, you know, the commissioners who would lead up the agency would first be proposed by a bipartisan blue ribbon commission of experts. The president would appoint folks, uh, but they would have to be uh, confirmed by the House, which is the more representative body in Congress. They would have staggered terms with term limits. There would be strong conflict of interest provisions, including revolving door bans um, and also prohibitions on uh, contributing to, to folks uh, in, in Congress or at the presidential level uh, while serving. And we also included a requirement that more than half of the commissioners would have a, a track record of election administration, which I think is really important because this work is hard and it's technical and it's, it's nuanced and you, you need to have some grounding in election administration before you sit on one of these federal bodies. Um, we include a provision for an independent inspector general uh, that could hold the body accountable. And, you know, maybe more important than anything else, we make sure that uh, no more than two of, or, or I should say, uh, fewer than half of uh, the, the members of the commission could be from the same political party. So you would not have a single party dominating the seats on the commission. So it's a bunch of separate individual safeguards that when put together would make the agency fairly uh, robust to partisan influence. Uh, that's that's great, Charlotte. I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> I mean, yeah, other than that, we really thought about that question a lot, James, about how to how to balance the need for a strong agency with protections against being used for narrow partisan gain. I, I, I'm, I'm curious what Julia uh, is thinking about, and I want to I want to hear from her now. Yeah, great. So I I was sort of thinking about this in um my through my kind of American political development lens. This will surprise no one. I was kind of thinking about like three different three different institutional approaches in American politics to different problems we might face with you know especially these sort of like problems of um of how we how we shape the structure of democracy i guess and so we have this early era of decentralization and this kind of that, that james already talked about this kind of philosophical approach that is if we if we decentralize things that that will protect from from tyranny right so that's like one pervasive idea that i think in the area of voting has had as as others have pointed out some real kind of of hills and valleys right so on the one hand you have states and localities that throughout history have been really devoted to enfranchisement and some that have really you know have committed some pretty serious injustices in that regard and i would say that's still true so we have so we have that kind of order and that is the that is the order that i think has is the most kind of ideologically charged and challenged and also the one on which the other the other institutional orders are are built because we still do have this incredibly decentralized system and but then on top of that we have these sort of 20th century approaches and one of those is is a creation of independent agencies right and this has been this has been the story for a lot of different kinds of, of problems, right? This is like a progressive era story about all, all sorts of regulatory issues that don't have to do with voting. Um, I think it's also the story of the Federal Elections Commission um, and the enforcement of campaign finance law, which is ultimately kind of where I want to go. And then the, the third order is this sort of rights-based courts order. And, and we've alluded to the potential role of the courts here. But when I think about like 
one of the things I was thinking about as I was looking at your your work is what is the closest to this that we have had? And it seems to me that that answer to that is the Justice Department and the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. And I was thinking a lot about Jesse Rhodes' wonderful book about the Voting Rights Act and about the sort of enforcement politics around that um, and how essentially we see that the court first the courts gutted that but also the justice department is incredibly political and so as an enforcement wing of the um of the kind of voting protections in that regard the justice department was really inconsistent i don't know if i'm, I'm supposed to say that that the justice department has has been really political but i think it's true i think that it's it's civil rights enforcement priorities uh change a lot depending on who controls the White House. So, um, and can, you know, personnel is policy. And you it seems, you know, you've all clearly really thought about that. So I guess my question is, given that we have these two 20th century regimes that at least were sort of in effect and have both sort of failed, I would argue, um, one with an independent agency and one that's sort of this, like, enforcement through the legal system and through... Um, through this kind of legal-oriented idea of rights and then enforced through the Justice Department is kind of what, you know, what would be different about what you've proposed? How would it, how would it avoid the failures of the FEC, which I would argue is pretty toothless right now and really doesn't, like, doesn't go after egregious campaign finance violations. Is that correct? Um so I'm wondering kind of how, you know, how how this would be different, how this would transcend some of the politics that have brought down the FEC or if this is if it's an institutional design problem as well as a kind of society's values problem. Um, that's I realize that was sort of more of like Julia's version of American political history than a question. But um, I, I trust the, the two of you to be up to that challenge. Charlotte, you want to take the first crack or do you want me to? Sure. This is a good point. We designed, uh, we put forward our design for a federal elections agency uh, in large part uh, in an attempt to avoid some of the problems that we've seen with the Federal Election Commission. And so uh, for people who don't follow election uh, administration and regulation at the federal level, just a, a note on the FEC, the Federal Election Commission. Uh, this has uh, existed for, for a decently long time. Uh, it's uh, an even-numbered commission. So uh, an even number of commissioners uh, run the commission. It is tasked with overseeing and, and regulating federal campaign finance. Uh, and because it has an even number of seats and those seats are split between the two major parties, uh, as partisan polarization has grown in the country, uh, as, as folks have more uh, efficiently sorted into the two parties, we've seen increasing deadlock and gridlock at the FEC. I would argue that a lot of it, it really kind of does, uh, in large part, come down to uh, an institutional design problem. Of course, what type of agency you can pass through Congress, of course, uh, that might have been because the only agency that could be passed through Congress was one that would have the potential to be gridlocked, right? Uh, and one in which no single party could have uh, majority power. And so uh, what we've seen with the FEC is that even in, in 2020, one of the highest stakes elections in modern history, it didn't have enough folks serving on the commission to even reach quorum and meet. 
much of the time. And then when it has been able to meet, it has not been able to pass rulings on important substantive campaign finance issues. Uh, so it's basically toothless and ineffective. And former chairs of the commission have written publicly about this. Anne Ravel is one of them. Uh, she wrote in the Washington Post that it was just an agency that was completely toothless and not doing its job. So we know this and we do not want to repeat this. And that, that is why with the federal elections agency that Lee and I are proposing, we called for to, to start an odd number of commissioners so that there's always someone who can break a tie. And for, as I, as I said earlier, for there to never be a situation in which one party has majority control, uh, but there will always be that, that swing voter, the fifth commissioner who can break ties. I think that the question of the Justice Department is interesting, and I'm going to let Lee speak to it, but I will say that another agency we were looking at was the Federal Reserve. Uh, this is a um, largely independent agency, despite the federal administration being quite partisan, of course, and, and light, we would like to have more control over the Federal Reserve. It was created by and remains accountable to Congress, but its members serve for staggered limited terms. Its board of governors cannot include elected officials or members of the presidential administration. Very importantly, its funding is not allocated through the really highly partisan congressional budgetary process. So we made sure to look at you know, the agencies that we thought were the best examples of independent uh, administration and enforcement of laws and figure out what they were doing well and try to build those provisions into our proposal. That's great, Charlotte. Julia, I wanna pick up on the point that you made about is this sort of analogous to Voting Rights Act and the Department of Justice's inconsistent enforcement of it. And I mean, I think there's two things to say there. One is I'd rather have a Voting Rights Act with inconsistent enforcement by the Department of Justice than no Voting Rights Act at all. So I think certainly any federal law there's going to be a, a challenge over enforcement, but right now we have nothing to kind of uh, work with uh, in this space, or we have limit. I shouldn't say we have nothing. We have we have limited tools to ensure equal voting across, equal and fair voting across the, the United States, other than sort of this cacophony of of lawsuits through the the state and federal courts uh, that sometimes go one way, sometimes go another. Uh, and create just tremendous confusion and inconsistency. Um, you know, the second point, which I think it gets at something that's much, much more challenging, is this question of the rules of democracy themselves being a political issue right now. And you know, we can bring into this conversation a whole broader conversation around HR1, uh, which you know is a very strong pro-democracy piece of legislation that I think had Democrats uh, had a f won a few more seats in the Senate, they would have tried very hard to to pass. You know, it has things like automatic voter registration, independent redistricting commissions everywhere, and you know I think we would have seen this federal elections agency as a natural attachment to 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 the laws that HR one would would put in place. Uh, now, the, the question around all of that is, you know, is this just a, a partisan thing to help Democrats win more elections or does this, you know, strike at some basic idea of what democratic fairness ought to look like in a 21st century democracy? And, you know, I, I think the, the answer there to me is pretty clear that that 
what we are proposing in terms of uh, basic standards of fairness would be to any scholar of democracy, uh, like I said at the beginning, a floor. Uh, like these are the basic things that we have to have in order to have a fair democracy. And you know, to I think on Charlotte's point about you know if if this was in place, I think you know the Republican Party would have to adjust. And I think wind up actually being a, a much more successful political party uh, in many respects because the, the whole this whole strategy of going after a declining share of the electorate and pushing harder and harder to make it harder for people to vote is really a, an unsustainable strategy. But it is propped up by a system of elections that that allows it to to work. But under a different uh, a different system of, of voting rules, you know, I, I think you would actually have to, to see some some big changes on, you know, I mean, really probably in both political parties that I think would make American politics work quite a bit better. Can I ask a couple of, um, of follow-ups there? One of them, I think this is how I got to thinking about the Justice Department, was specifically that our, our way of thinking about protecting elections has really been heavily rooted in racial justice. And I think one way you can characterize our, our voting problems right now is that they're heavily influenced by the legacies of, of racism, but they're not, it's not limited to that, right? There's also the whole other set of problems that are not linked up with that. So I'm curious kind of how like how how that is factored into your agency design. And also another kind of more pragmatic question that I had was sort of like, what will this what will this do? Um, you know, what happens when, you know, I'm not to single out particular states, but when Mississippi doesn't follow the rules or, you know, there there were a number of places in the north covered by the Voting Rights Act. You know, what happens when places don't follow the rules? What will be the what will be the teeth? Because enforcement, I think, has been a big um, a big part of this problem. Leah, why don't you jump in first? I've been talking a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, on this question of. I'm trying to think through this because this is actually a, a hard question. Right? I mean, I think that the framework for uh, you know voting rights has been largely and and electoral fairness had you know has really flowed from the the Voting Rights Act and, and that the history of discrimination in our political system has been largely a racialized system of discrimination. And what makes this current moment both so challenging and so toxic is that race and party have become so uh, closely linked so that what hurts black voters and brown voters also mostly hurts Democratic Party. And obviously, the, the close nature of our two-party system and the sort of winner-take-all, knife's edge uh, results that we're seeing in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Arizona and Nevada sort of keep emphasizing this point that that little things on the margins that make it harder or easier to vote can actually have profound consequences for the control of the entire country, which is creates these tremendously perverse incentives to try to squeeze every last bit out of out of election law. Uh, and, you know, I mean, at, at some level that that is fundamentally a problem of our, you know, broader two party system, which is why, as you all know, I think that the, the biggest thing we can do 
for democracy reform and fairness uh, is to just have a very different system of voting so that power doesn't hinge on these really narrow margins. Uh, and also, I think it would, de- it, would, it would de-link some of the racial voting issues from some of the partisan issues. And that's a whole other topic. So like any proposal, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to, to separate it from the broader context of, of how we do elections. And, you know, I mean, I think in, in this political system, you know, it's, it's really fraught to think about what fair elections mean when Democrats and Republicans have two very different views of what fair elections are. And that is, you know, it's become a partisan issue. It's a racial issue. And again, my hope is that with such an agency, we can kind of get to a, a, a floor and get some basic standards in place. And you know, rather than having this endless, you know, litigation and legal uh, shenanigans to try to shift the, uh, shift the rules one way or another. And with that floor, then we can build a build a house of a, of a more fair system of voting in this country. So but it, it's really hard to start anywhere. Uh, given given how uh, given where we are right now, uh, you know, there's a there. If, I don't know if you all know this song, uh, uh, this "They Might Be Giants" song. Everybody wants a wants a rock to wind a piece of string around. And actually, fun fact: uh, in when I was a, a uh, college journalist, I, and uh, and they might be giants were coming to town. I actually got to interview one of the they might be giants, and and I, I asked. Uh, John, they're both named John. So I asked John, I can't remember which, which John it was, uh, what, what, like to explain that lyric. He was like, well, you know, like it's really hard to get a ball of string going, but you, you know, but if you have a rock, then you can get that ball of string going. And I feel like a lot of what we're trying to do in this democracy reform space is kind of get that rock, right? Because right now we have nothing. So we keep trying to build this ball of string uh, you know, which is my metaphor here for a, for a more fair democracy. But that ball of string keeps collapsing because, you know, the, the basic rock would be a sort of sense of that there, there are basic standards here to how we do elections and that we can build around that. But without that, it's really hard to build anything else. Does that make any sense? That makes total sense to me because I, as, as some of our listeners may know, uh, am someone who spends a lot of time knitting. And um, winding yarn is a big part of my life. So, yeah, so finding finding the rock to, to put the string around is tricky. But one thing that you learn when you knit a lot is that there are a lot of different things you can use for this. Um, I don't know if that makes for a helpful metaphor for democracy. You can use your finger. You can use the label that came with the yarn. Um, if it's made with any kind of sturdy cardboard, I have a lot of thoughts about this actually. But <laughs> the, um, you know, but I think that there, maybe there's a little metaphor there, or maybe we're on like three days post-election lack of sleep, and I have taken this in the wrong direction. So I'll stop talking. Oh, my takeaway is that I want to be Julia uh, because I want. <laughs> I have great admiration for people who know how to knit things. I just think it's very nice to have practical skills in this world. Um, I, I did want to add in that, uh, you know, you, you asked at the top of your last question, what does this enforcement actually look like? And I will be the first to say that I am not at core, at my core, an administrative scholar. I, I don't build executive agencies for my day job. And there are people who were hoping this, you know, this proposal will inspire to think more seriously about the development 
of a federal elections agency. But you know, when we were looking at at who seems to do enforcement well, uh, we we did look to the Environmental Protection Agency, and you know, the EPA has a few different tools in its toolkit. I will say, you know, for those who are going, but the EPA has been you know taken over, but by by you know forces that don't want to protect the environment. Like yes, and we have designed our agency quite differently from the EPA in many ways, but when they are led by folks who are interested in enforcing environmental protection laws, they use formal orders, fines, uh, lawsuits, criminal enforcement actions, you know, a whole suite of tools to make sure uh, that the that the rule of law is followed. And so, you know, we do have, when, when agencies are empowered to enforce the law, we have many examples of them actually having tools in their toolkit to do so relatively well. Well, I don't want to be the skunk at the garden party here, but you know, the song I typically start with Lee is everybody wants to rule the world. I think it's a little bit before they might be giants, I guess. So tears for fears. And I typically, you know, America, as I say, time and time again, we, we strive to not create a situation where our politics can be dominated by rulers, regardless of who those people are. And, you know, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, so the things that the EPA enforces, originally it was they were designed in a more cooperative federalist type model. It was state, federal. Um, that was the original intent, I guess, uh, behind them. But when we talk about elections, I think we have to, we're, we're intruding. There are certain standards that have been implemented in the constitution. I know we've adopted, you know, we've talked about this, but they're very specific. You shall not abridge the right to vote on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, right? 15th amendment. You can't deny it or abridge it on, you know, account of sex, the 19th amendment. You can't have a poll tax. What is that? 26th amendment or, um, you know, that's 18 years old. Uh, I guess 24th is the poll tax. I, but We've gone in and specified, and then from those things, we have then acquired federal authority to regulate beyond what is mentioned in Article One, Section Four. But you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say, look, yeah, there are there are good things and bad things from state decentralization and control of elections. And I think right now we're focused on presidential elections and congressional elections, whereas you acknowledge the case, I think, is a lot clearer. There are also state elections. There's a whole host of other things. And the state, the way state elections are run, as you all know, I mean, you have it's down to the county and precinct level. And if you're in a precinct or a county and you have certain ideas about how it's best to meet the, the designs of your popula population, and I know that this can be abused, but when you have certain ideas about that, it's a lot easier to hold your state accountable and to change the law in your state than it is to do it at the federal level. And I guess what I when I'm thinking about this, I mean, it's being more specific. I mean, what specifically is a federal elections agency going to do beyond the legal things that have been laid out? Right. I mean, if we I mean, gerrymandering seems to be, you know, that's something that's in the Constitution. I mean, not gerrymandering itself, but I mean, that again, is, it, it brings me back to the, the Constitution. What exactly is a federal elections agency going to do in terms of specific policies? And I and I preface that by saying, look, I, I, I don't like voter suppression. I don't like voter. Um, I think it should be easy for people to vote. But I also recognize that there's a lot of experimentation and innovation that goes on at the local level, I think, a lot more than we normally appreciate. And. Uh, I think that this could potentially kind of stymie that, if you will. On the question of gerrymandering, a federal elections agency could, for instance, well, so to, to be clear, the, the agency is is created in 
conjunction with a congressional act that would set standards, right? So the congressional act could, for instance, mandate uh, independent redistricting commissions in the states. And then the federal elections agency could ensure that congressional redistricting is truly fair for all voters by reviewing uh, dubious district maps that had been flagged for it, uh, deciding whether they meet the standards and if they but, don't, uh, requiring that new maps be drawn up. And can I jump in there? I mean, can we, I mean, and I, and I don't know the answer to this. I mean, you all know this much more than I. It seems to me that there is a clear case for Congress having the authority in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to place limits on what states can do with regard to the franchise and, and using regulations to make it harder for Black people to vote. I get that. Does Congress have the authority to to in, mandate independent redistricting commissions under the Constitution? I mean, I do, and maybe they do. I don't, I don't know. Absolutely, they do. absolutely, they do. Yeah. And where? I, and, I mean, I mean, my reading is it. I mean, it's in it's in HR one, uh, and you know, the folks writing HR one worked very hard to make sure that they weren't going to get dinged in the courts. Uh, but where yeah, in the I mean, but where but where in the article Constitution? One, article one. I mean, so Article one, Section four gives Congress very broad authority to regulate federal elections. Con- but in concurrence and, and with they, the states, they, well, it look, gives the states I mean, and Congress. Well, here's here's the history. Now, any I'm gonna I'm gonna go deep into the history here. And, nice. All right, 1842 Apportionment Act. Any 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 takers here? Okay. So in the in the 1820s and the 1830s, states started to have this at-large block voting more and more because it was kind of a mix of single single member districts and at-large voting. And what happened was that states would get like a, you know a, a narrow Democratic majority in the state legislature, and they'd say, "Oh well, we're a Democratic state, so now all nine of our congressional seats." are going to be up at in the same at-large election. Everybody's going to get nine votes. And what happens when you're a 55% Democratic state, instead of having a 55-45 delegation, you have a not, or 55%, 45%, you have a 100% congressional delegation. And, you know, this was mostly Democratic states doing it. And, you know, then in 1840, there's a there's a, a wave election and the Whigs win. So a bunch of states that got their entire delegation to, to go Whig. But if you know your history of 1840, William Henry Harrison wins, but then he catches cold and he dies uh, very quickly. And John Tyler, who was never really a, a genuine Whig, is president. And, you know, he refuses to pass the, the bank bill that the Whigs had campaigned on. His entire cabinet resigned. So he's incredibly unpopular. So the Whigs, like in Congress, are like, oh, crap, we're going to get killed in the 42 midterms. So we got to get rid of this statewide voting thing and enact single member districts, which is, I mean, that, that statewide vote, you could look at it as a, as a gerrymandering thing. So they say, all right, every state has to do statewide districts because at least we'll keep a few, a few seats then. So 1842 Apportionment Act is this huge partisan drop down fight. I mean, it's fascinating history. Uh, and the Whigs eventually prevail on pretty much a straight party vote. Uh, they passed the single member district mandate, which is part of the reason why we have single member districts now that was later recodified a few times. And they still get creamed in the 42 elections. So but they're also, there you but, have it. but they're not mandating who draws those districts, I guess, is my point. Like, well, I think they're it's mandating a, it's, the rule, the rules of how districts get get drawn. 
but but it's I mean it is I, I they're mandating what the drawers can do, but the drawers presumably are to be determined by the states that contain the districts. Um, and I guess that's that's where I'm getting hung up on. I mean I don't well I'm pretty sure it's constitutional, but let's not let's not get too too dragged down since neither neither of us are constitutional lawyers. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kind of dropping in some obscure history and reminding us that, that this I love is the 42 reference. Oh, it's great. Well, it, the 42 reference is really great. I will say, I mean, from what I have read on this topic, it does seem like there is, there's pretty broad consensus among constitutional scholars that Congress, uh, by being given the power to make or alter state uh, election regulations, that Congress has uh, the ultimate say over over what these laws look like. But I, I do think that under, as I said earlier, under the current SCOTUS makeup, uh, we, we can't be confident that that interpretation of the of the Constitution even would hold. And so, you know, we're a unified democratic federal regime, you know, unified uh, democratic Congress and presidential administration to try to push this sort of policy agenda, I do think they would want to think seriously about about court expansion in parallel. So can I ask a question to kind of, I think, as we come up on the on the hour mark, um, bring us home a little bit? I, this is maybe a little basic, but I think this is going to be on people's minds for some time. And as we said at the top of the recording, we're, we're recording um, about uh, one o'clock Eastern time um, on November 6th. So a couple of days after the the 2020 election and the votes are still being counted. How how would the 2020 election specifically have looked different under under your proposed agency? Do you think it would have been a lot more straightforward? I think I think that probably you can look to how elections were run this cycle in states that well before 2020 had adopted universal vote by mail. States like Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Hawaii. Uh, that have had pretty straightforward elections, you know, high voter participation. It, it seems from the data I've seen so far, pretty high voter satisfaction. That's not to say that COVID would not have still thrown some some wrenches in election administration, uh, at least in terms of, of those folks who do still want to go vote in person on election day or register in person on election day. Uh, but I think in terms of election administration, it would have been much more straightforward uh, and easier. And then um, we probably would have seen higher, this is tough, I was going to say higher voter turnout among uh, you know, voters of color and young people. It's tough because, you know, there has been widespread voter suppression in 2020 uh, that was intended to depress turnout among those groups. But we also know that sometimes when voter suppression is made pretty overt, that that, that can spark anger in voters and they can work even harder to overcome barrier, barriers and turnout at even higher rates. We've seen some of that after the passage of strict voter ID laws in certain states. So you know, we saw a record high voter turnout in 2020. That may have changed actually under a more coherent and standardized uh, voting system if folks were not being energized to turn out in order to overcome the effects of voter suppression. Uh, but that being said, I certainly don't think anybody would encourage designing a system with haphazard voter suppression across the United States in order to <laughs> boost voter turnout. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to the end here. So I think we'll do some some final takeaways. James, have we convinced you that, that this is a good idea or do you still have your doubts? I don't I don't know. I'm not so much 
I don't have my doubts about what you're arguing in, in the paper. I guess I have my doubts about the consequences. You know, once you set the machine in motion in the language of the 1780s, where it goes. And even if, and if it is a good idea, you know, perhaps let's double down and say, OK, if poll taxes were wrong and we need to use the Constitution to get rid of them, uh, let's do the same thing for this. And let's, that's the way you get a nationwide uh, mandate is that you you try to get a nationwide mandate. And I think maybe that's maybe there's a case to be made that that's what we need. I just ultimately, I look at, you know, in the turnout question, and I guess my final thought here would be, that really brings me back to the 19th century because it's a very bizarre time in American history for lots of different reasons. But as you see, as, as throughout the early 20th century, as the election system gets to be more regulated and standardized, turnout begins to go down and then it goes down. And you get things like citizenship requirements. Prior to 1894, 12 states permitted non-citizens to vote. Residence requirements, registration requirements. You can't do same-day voting. You know, you get all kinds of stuff that all comes in and then slowly starts to decrease turnout. And because it makes it harder for parties to like benefit, I guess, from 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 getting people to the polls because they don't really know what's going to happen. And it makes it harder for people to vote. But ultimately, I think we Wait, need can to- Wait, make- can I just- can I just stop you there, James, on, on that that um, standard, that, that point that you made about turnout going down? So, I mean, there's a couple of reasons that turnout goes down in the early 20th century. One is sort of the, the, the decline of, of patronage jobs and the rise of civil service. So fewer people have jobs tied directly to, to who wins or who loses. Another is um, the, the Australian ballot, the secret the secret vote, which you know makes it harder for parties to to intimidate people and drive them to the polls. There's a kind of military style of like getting your getting your voters to to the polls. So I mean, like I don't I don't want to over nostalgize the the high turnout of of that you know late Gilded Age period. Oh yeah, certainly there are, and there are lots of costs. I guess my but I'm trying to get to the underlying kind of dynamic at play here and. And I think the idea that, you know, I, I'm not sure that a, a centralized one size fits all rules are going to necessarily boost turnout when our, our examples that we have in our history suggest suggest the uh, the opposite. And, and I go back to my original question. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners probably have concerns about things like voter ID. And I think that there is a strong, you, you know, people can make a strong case. People may disagree with it for voter ID, and it seems to me that a federal elections agency would be, once that constitutional right has been conceded, uh, that has the authority then to impose a voter ID law uh, to maintain the security of our elections across the country. And, you know, that's not, that's, I don't think that's my, my opinion. I don't think that's constitutional, but so I think it can go both ways. I mean, once we create these structures, they can then be used for all kinds of things once we set that machine in motion that we may not ultimately intend at first. Well, so two things here. One, I think this is why we have built into our proposal, uh, which folks, by the way, can can read on the New America website, or I think you'll you'll probably link to it from the podcast. Uh, it's why we build in a, a fact finding component of the agency that that would be learning over time wh- which uh, voting provisions do seem best at boosting participation, increasing fairness throughout the system, while also uh, maintaining security in the system. And there's broad consensus across election law scholars that strict voter ID laws do not do much to increase election security while having a, a disparate uh, negative impact on voter turnout for certain, especially low propensity voting groups. So I would hope that under the principles 
uh, forming the agency that the agency would be required to uh, respond to uh, and appeal to that that uh, strict voter ID law would not be able to uh, be enacted across the U.S. So here are two observations I have that I think might be sort of related. And one is that I'm actually really fascinated by the fact that that James and I both have this kind of reaction to this proposal that is, I think, linked to kind of the, the politics of federalism and the growth of the federal government and also to um, to the kind of politics of unintended consequences. And yet our, our reactions are very different in the sense that I, you know, I get the sense that for, for James, some of this is a kind of constitutional set of objections um, or set of concerns and for as sort of consolidation of power. Um, and for me, it's kind of, I'm thinking, I'm looking at what I know of kind of the recent history of regulation and, and, and thinking, how, how will this be, how will this have the appropriate amount of teeth? How will this be effective? How will this be consistent? And so it's, it's interesting to me that we, we both have sort of similar um, questions about about federal agencies, but from like two different directions. Um, and, you know, related to that, I think what I'm really taking away from this is I feel really inspired to want to actually learn more about agency design, which is something I should probably know more about as someone who researches and teaches the presidency. Um, I, you know, I, I feel sort of inspired to really, like, as I think about how important personnel and enforcement and, and, and design are, I'm inspired to learn more. So, you know, I can't think of a better pandemic weekend activity. So fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, that, that is a, a great way to spend a weekend. So you know, I think the, you know, the fundamental question with all reform proposals is to say, well, look, any reform proposal is going to have its flaws. And certainly there will be unintended consequences, because there always are. But, you know, I think in thinking about any any proposal and, you know, uh, comparing it to perfection, you know, is a is a recipe for for coming up short. What you need to compare it to, as always, is the status quo and maintaining the status quo also has unintended consequences because maintaining the status quo is also a decision. And that's something that I think we, we often forget in these kinds of reform conversations. And you know, when I look at the status quo, I look at the big hot mess that is undermining the basic sense that we have fair and free elections in the United States. Because in, in a growing number of states, we have something that really doesn't look like fair and free elections in the United States. And that, to me, is a tremendous problem. So, you know, can I guarantee that this agency will work to solve the problem? No. But looking at how the landscape of elections works in the U.S. right now, can I say that we have a tremendous, tremendous problem that is fundamentally undermining the legitimacy of our entire democracy and that if we don't do anything, it's not going to fix itself? I think I'm pretty certain about that. Charlotte, final final words? You know, we can allow status quo election policies that are distributed uh, across states and across localities to 
run our democracy into the ground. You know, th th these policies aren't just things that you pass and then at some point you overturn them, right? Election policies are all about who has power and, and the more power you have, the easier it is to, to keep giving yourself power. And we're currently, as, as Lee can talk endlessly about, in, in a bit of a doom loop where um, our democratic rules are getting worse and worse over time. And this is affirmed by multiple international organizations that measure democracies on how free and fair they are and the US keeps slipping year after year. Or, uh, you know, as I would advocate, we can swing for the fences and enact sweeping changes um, to, to change the ground rules of our election system. And under those rules, uh, hope and, and kind of expect that anti-democratic forces will no longer be able to seize control and rig the system in their favor. Um, I think the unfortunate reality is that we have been able to do this successfully in the past. And then sometimes people forget, you know, people forget how high the stakes were. They forget how parties or, or bad actors would use their power um, for the ill of the country and they let down their guard and and then we end up back in the, the, a similar place in the future where we have to make these big swings and try to reverse some of the damage. So I do think that we're going to also hopefully as a country learn to stay a little more vigilant. But yeah, I think that you know, the status quo is not going to cut it. And if we don't take some sort of big action soon, we may not have the opportunity in the future to, um, to kind of, to use more layman's terms, unrig the system, uh, right? All that being said, uh, I, I, I don't see this proposal taking place unless we have a unified uh, democratic control of federal government. And so a lot is going to hinge on what we see uh, with these two Georgia runoffs in, in the next few months. But I do think it's important to have this idea out there regardless. I'm so glad that we are debating it and discussing it. Uh, it, it these types of big picture uh, reform ideas need to get more attention and they need to get more attention soon because as I said, we're, we're running out of time to fix the system. Well, thank you, Charlotte. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.